Good morning. It's good to have you uh, worshiping uh, this day and joining in on this uh, broadcasting of our worship service. I want us to remember that though we are all in our, our different homes and different places, we all have within us the same spirit, the Holy Spirit. And it is that spirit who is uniting us together and is uniting our worship together uh, to honor our Lord as the body of Jesus Christ. I want to thank everyone who's making it possible that you are able uh, to join in on worship. Uh, Chris Hetlich is in the sound booth recording. He'll be editing this and then putting it together so that you are receiving what you are today. Uh, Amy Reber, our music director, is leading the choir and playing. And those singing in the choir today are Sandy Boyd, Carol Walker, Barb Roundtree, Jewel Morrison, Dick Forrester, Carlton Curtis, Gene Hesse, and Jan Murray. And then the flute that you'll be hearing is that of Lynn Folks. I also want to thank you uh, for the faithfulness by which you have been sending in your offerings to the church. That faithfulness has kept us on track uh, through this year. And uh, I just want to encourage you to continue that and again to thank you. Now let's prepare our hearts for worship.
In Psalm 34, 1, let me read. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Let's uh, sing together praise and thanksgiving to our Lord Jesus Christ.
do come and we give praise to you, our great God, for your majesty. For the majesty of God the Father, the majesty of God the Son, and the majesty of God the Holy Spirit. And may your spirit now be upon us to anoint us, that as we continue to lift up our worship before you, that you will be honored and glorified, that you will take delight in this worship we bring before you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, for our confession of faith, we're going to be using a scripture today from Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And I've chosen it because of the, the theme of the, uh, the message to today, the supremacy of Christ. Next to the passage that we're going to be looking at, this is the other great passage of exalting Jesus Christ. So let us confess together our faith. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed upon the cross. And for our next scripture reading, will be from Psalm 2. Again, this is a passage that our text is going to be referring to in its exaltation of Jesus. Psalm 2. Let us hear the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's continue our worship, singing together. Turn your eyes upon Jesus.
We're beginning a uh, slight change now in our pastoral prayer going forth uh, from today. We're going to begin the pastoral prayer by us praying together the Lord's Prayer. So I invite you to join with me now as we pray that prayer that our Lord Jesus taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Our Father, we do thank you that we may come before you. You dwell in heaven. You are the great God in heaven. And by your Holy Spirit, we are able to bring our prayers before you in heaven. And we know that you hear us because you are our Father. We thank you and praise you. We pray that we, as your children, will honor, will hallow your name, that we will do that in this very service. Our thoughts will be turned to you. Our hearts will be turned to you that you will be honored in the words that we present through our singing, through our prayers, through the reading of the word, through the proclamation of your word, and always that your name will be honored. We pray, our Father, for your kingdom to come, and we pray for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the work of his Holy Spirit who continues to work throughout this world to spread that kingdom, to build it up. We pray for the churches throughout this world, in our own neighborhood, in this community, praying for our own church, praying for the churches throughout our country, churches throughout this world. There are those now, churches, people, your people, who are worshiping you at this very moment. And we pray for your working in them. Work in them in their homes, in their neighborhoods, in their jobs, their schools. With everyone whom you have placed in their lives, use them to be testimonies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be courageous in their witness. Uh, to uh, be consistent and to, to stand firm in their faith, in their beliefs, and to be willing to pass that on. Give them the, the words to speak and the gracious and a loving spirit. We pray for those missionaries whom we support. Thank you for their dedication, for their zeal for your kingdom. And we pray for them to bear fruit in their labors. We pray, our Father, for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray especially for your people to do your will. That all the more that we will grow into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ, to think uh, the thoughts that are pleasing to you, to speak the words that uh, are in keeping with you, and to do the work, make the choices that are in keeping with your will. Our Father, we pray that you would give to us our daily bread. Particularly this morning, we think of the spiritual bread of your word, we are hungry for it. We pray that you would feed us, again, with the reading of your scriptures, 
and then with the proclamation of your word. Indeed, I pray for your spirit to be upon me as I will proclaim that word as a minister of the gospel, that I will be faithful and that you would use these words to go forth as a means of grace to build up your people. I pray, Father, for any who are listening who do not yet know Jesus Christ. And I pray that as these words go forth, that your spirit will do that work of awakening them and giving them the ears to hear, that they may understand, that they may know, and find their hope that is in Jesus Christ alone. We pray, our Father, for your protection of all of us, all of us throughout this world from the pandemic and the coronavirus. We pray for the numbers down to steadily decline, for this to come to an end, that there will not be a second wave. Give us wisdom, each of us, and how we're to contribute and help with that. We particularly lift up before you decision makers, a president, governors, mayors, all those who are making decisions affecting millions of people to guide them and give them wisdom. We pray, our Father, to protect our country, protect the countries throughout this world from economic collapse. All the more than we are reminded of how helpless we are. Without you, we think that we have things under control. We think we have all the systems in place. This pandemic reminds us that only you, only you who are the God in heaven with the sovereign power has things under control. Only you can work things according, all things according to your will. And so we look to you and trust you. We trust that as we ask for you, of you our daily bread, we trust that you will provide it as you have always been faithful in providing. We pray that you would forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And our debts easily rise high and, and higher. Because we, we know that whatever best intentions we have, we have not done your will as it is done in heaven. Whatever best intentions we may have, we have not served your kingdom with all of our heart and all of our ability. We have not honored your name as we ought, and there have been times in which we have dishonored it. We thank you for the forgiveness that we have received in Jesus Christ, that he is the one who has paid our debt, has paid that debt at a great cost. All the more then, give us a spirit of forgiveness of others. How can we hold grudges against others? when you have forgiven uh, all of our sins, and by doing it, by paying the cost of our Lord Jesus Christ by his blood, paying our debts. May we be those who are known, those who are quickly to forgive, slow to take offense. We are those who have a love that cover a multitude of sins. We pray that we not be led into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil one, Satan, who is always trying to tempt us into sin. Deliver us from the, the temptations, the pressures of this world that is too much with us. Protect us from our own frailties, from our own weaknesses, 
our own tendencies to go astray. We thank you that we can lift this prayer before you, knowing that to you belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory. In Christ's name, amen.
For our second uh, scripture reading, let me uh, read from the Gospel of John, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. Again, this is a passage that's going to repeat the same themes of uh, the exaltation of who our Lord Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Well, we're beginning a new series of sermons, and we're going through a letter in the New Testament that was written by an unknown author to an unknown people. It is considered the most complicated of all the letters of the New Testament. It explores the subject matter in depth that the other letters, at best, they just kind of touch upon it, and most of the time they skip it all together. Now, with all of that acknowledgement, I think, though, that you're going to find this letter to be, if not one of the most, if not the most practical letter uh, that applies to you and helps you through this day. Because even as the author, and he's going to take us deep, deep in the Old Testament thought, even as he does so, he's going to bring us out back to the surface, where we're going to feel like we're going to feel like he understands us, and he feels like that he understands what's going on today. And what he's going to do, he's going to help us deal with today's challenges to our faith. And he's going to do it just like the other writers do it. Everyone in the New Testament, they point us to Jesus. But what our author is going to do, he's going to give us an insight into Jesus in a way that we, even today, typically do not think of. He's going to lead us to Jesus, who is our high priest. Now, with that in mind, let's uh, begin looking into our text, Hebrews chapter 1. And I'll begin reading in verse 1 and part of verse 2. Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You know, that phrase, long ago, at many times, many ways, I don't know if you're like me, it made me think of the Star Wars. You know, the way they begin that line, a long time ago in a, far, in a galaxy far, far away. And the author is trying to do a little bit of what, what George Lucas was doing there, creating a sense of, of wonder. But whereas in Star Wars, Lucas is thinking of taking his viewers to another time, to another place, and just keeping us there, our author is bringing up the long ago past in order to bring us back to the wonder of the present. According to the author, there is something more special today than there ever was in the past. And it has to do with how God brings revelation to his people. 
And so he's speaking of what we regard as the Old Testament period. Back then, God provided his revelation, uh, you know, through uh, his prophets primarily. We think when we hear that term prophets, we think of Elijah, Elijah, for example, and them going to their people and prophesying to them. We think of the prophets whom we read, their books, like Isaiah and Jeremiah. Now, the author's readers, who probably most of of them are Jewish people, they're thinking of others as well. Those whom we don't normally associate with prophets, they're thinking of them like Moses, like David. And so our author, he's referring to these many prophets whom through the centuries, God spoke to his covenant people, the Jews. But now, now in these last days, God is revealing himself, or he has revealed himself, and he's revealed his will through one person in one era, and that is his son. And so this very first line is lays the foundation, really, of what the whole letter is about. So to begin with, we and the author's readers, he is saying that we are in a new and final period of history that is known as the last days. And we typically think of that expression, the last days, as beginning as, well, that being near the time of Christ's return. We tend to think that the last days are the days of the last generation and of this earth's existence as we know it. And we like to speculate and, and wonder, are we in the last days now? Well, our author may have thought that he lived in the last generation. But that's not what he really has in mind when he uses that term. The term for him and for the other New Testament writers It's of a particular era of human history. There are several eras. There was the pre-flood era. There was the the pre-Moses era between the, the flood and the time of Moses and the Exodus. There is the 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 era of Moses with the with the law. And all of those eras, though, were looking forward to the arrival of the Messiah, the Messiah who would come and crush the head of the serpent, that promise made to Eve back in the garden, that Messiah who would come and bring redemption. Well, Jesus has arrived, that long-awaited Messiah. And by his coming, and especially by his death and by his resurrection, he is ushered in this new era of the Messiah, of the era of the redemption accomplished. There was nothing more to be done. Nothing more to be done except for the return of Jesus as our king, to consummate his kingdom, to restore the kingdom of God with the new heaven and the new earth. This is the era of the last days. So yes, we are living in the last days just as the the readers of the, of the of our author were living in the last days. So what our author is pointing out in this first line is how the last days of this era is to be understood. It's to be understood 
in the revelation of Jesus himself and by the revelation that Jesus brings. So in his coming, Jesus brought revelation about God. He revealed who God is, what God is like, what God is doing, what God expects of us. Jesus also was demonstrating in his own life and his being God's character. And then Jesus, furthermore, he brought to fulfillment all the revelation of the Old Testament. He fulfilled that work of redemption that was prophesied. He embodied all the revelation of the Old Testament prophets about the Messiah, about God. And so from now on, in this last day's era, all revelation has come through Jesus directly and is or will be about him by his followers. In brief, Jesus brings the final word. Jesus is the final word about God and redemption. So what then do we learn about Jesus in our text? Well, first of all, that he is a son. Now, most translations read here, his son, meaning God's son. But actually, that term his is not, it's not in the Greek that's in the original manuscript. There's not even the, the article the. It's just really a son. And this is likely intentional by our author. Because he's introducing the term more like a, a title that Jesus has. The title is unique to Jesus, and he's going to emphasize this later on in the chapter. And so he's now, at this moment, going to present the supremacy of this unique son over all, over all creatures. Not as the greatest of God's creatures, but as one who is above, who is with God, who is God above creation. So let's continue reading here. Whom he appointed, whom God appointed, the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, meaning Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So the supremacy of Jesus Christ, this is the theme of this passage. And our author presents Jesus' supremacy in three ways. One by his position, another by his nature, and then thirdly, by his works. Now, let's look first of all at his position. In in verse 2, we're told that the Son is appointed heir of all things. And then you'll note in verse 4, it speaks of the name he has inherited. So what the author is saying here is that the very title of Son, of being a Son, places Jesus in the position of heir, just like in, in, the, in the old days, it is that son, that firstborn son, who is the heir of all of his father's possessions. 
And so he is the heir over all of God's creatures. He is the heir over all of God's creation. Now, what then of the Son's nature? Well, look with me in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And this is expressing the same thought uh, that Jesus spoke of, as recorded in John 14, 9, when Jesus said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is God. He has come to earth. He is, as uh, John records in chapter 1, verse 9, he is the true light coming into the world. He is, as the Nicene Creed puts it, He is light of light. In his flesh, Jesus manifested God, the God who is spirit. And he manifested, we're being told here, he manifested God perfectly as the exact imprint of his nature. You know, the formula for the Trinity is three persons but in one substance. What we're to understand here is that this substance is is embodied in Jesus. He, as as we recited from Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. So to recap for a moment, the supremacy of Jesus is found in his position as the Son who is heir over all of creation and in his nature as God. And the third way that his supremacy is manifested is by his work. Jesus is creator. He is redeemer. He is the son who has created all the world. There's nothing that has been created except by him and through him. He is the one who still upholds the universe by his power. Now that alone ought to grant him the position of heir of all things in creation. But there is more. For he has made purification for sins. Jesus in the flesh became the lamb who was sacrificed for sin. And thus he purified God's people of their sins. Now to add to this work, Jesus then takes his place after his resurrection. He ascends on high, takes his place at the right hand of his father who is the majesty on high. Now, our author doesn't expand on this implication now, but through much of the book, he will. He's going to show that that work up in heaven is the work of our Lord Jesus as our high priest. So all the more then, he rightfully takes the throne over his father's creation and over God's people in particular. Now, there's a reason for why the author is bringing up all of this. He's got a practical concern he's addressing when he's exalting Jesus in these opening verses. We get the first clue in verse 4, when he says, Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus, God's Son, is superior to angels. We're going to find out a little bit later on why this is important, why he's bringing this up. But let's just continue on down here. We're going to see how the remaining chapter is devoted 
to providing the proof text to argue this point. So first of all, there's the argument of Jesus' title of son. And so the author is going to quote from Psalm 2 and from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, that's Psalm 2. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's from Second Samuel. There is the argument that the son is worshipped by the angels. And so speaking of the, the son as the firstborn, he'll now quote from Deuteronomy 32, verse 43. And again, when he brings the firstborn, that's Jesus, into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Okay, the next argument, our author is going to contrast the positions and the roles of angels with that of the Son. His point is that the angels are but servants. They are sent out to do the bidding of God. So he quotes from Psalm 104. And of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. In contrast, the Son is enthroned as king as is presented in Psalm 45, 6 and 7. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, upright, of, of uprighteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. He goes on. The Son is furthermore ascribed with God's nature. He is creator. He is the eternal one who does not change. So here now our author turns to Psalm 102 again, verses 25 to 27. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Now, his final argument, he'll take us back to Psalm 2, which speaks of the son's authority. And he contrasts this authority as a king with the work of angels, again, as servants of their king and for the benefits of the king's people. And so he goes on in verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they the angels? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Now, before leaving the text and, and coming to our lessons, let me note a couple of observations about the way that the author uses what we understand as the Old Testament scriptures. Now, all the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament, but no one is as extensively as our writer. His whole letter is what he calls an exhortation. He'll do that back in his last chapter, in chapter 13. And so what we'd understand is that this letter is, in essence, it's a sermon. It's an expository sermon. 
What I am doing with this letter as our scripture is what he is doing with the Old Testament scriptures. He is explaining their meaning. Now, the way that he uses scripture is going to seem odd to us. If you were to turn to each of these Old Testament references in your Bible, with the exception of Psalm 2, I tell you, you'd be scratching your heads for, for a couple of reasons. One has to do with the wording of these quotations. If you were to go back in, in your Bibles and compare it with what the author has in Hebrews, it doesn't quite match up. The wording's a bit different. And that's going to be the same way throughout all of this letter. Now, the reason for the difference lies in the Bible that the author is using. It is what is known, we know it today, as the Septuagint. About 250 years before Jesus' birth, 70 or perhaps it was 72 Jewish scholars produced a Greek version of the Hebrew Scriptures. And Septuagint means 70. So that's the reason for the name. Now during that period, here's what was going on. The lands all around the Mediterranean were adapting Greek culture into their customs. And Greek became basically the second language for everyone so that the different nationalities could communicate with one another. You might have heard of the term Hellenistic Jews. They were Jews who, most of them were dispersed around the Mediterranean, but there were also those in Palestine who adapted more to Greek culture, to at least to a degree, but especially in conversing in Greek. It became their primary language. And so for them, the Septuagint became their Bible version of choice. Now, as you would expect, this Greek translation of Hebrew scriptures is going to vary to a degree of the existing Hebrew manuscripts, at least the ones that we have. And that accounts for many of the differences that we might read in the New Testament quotations, comparing them to the reading in the Old Testament. You know, it's similar to the differences between Bible translations today. We use different translations. And, and I'm reading from the ESV. You might have the New International Version. Someone might have the King James or someone might have a New American Standard or, or yet another translation. And you'll notice that as I'm reading, the wording's a little bit different from your uh, Bible version. So that accounts just for some of it because different translators are going to use different words and phrases that come to them, and that also applies to their own culture. Sometimes the differences, though, is due to what manuscripts they determine to use for any given passage. Sometimes the translators are going to use the Hebrew, the Masoretic text, but some will actually go to the Septuagint, and they think might actually even have the better uh, version, because we don't have any of the original manuscripts in which the writers wrote on. So, but here's the point for us. Our author's readers, when they are receiving these passages and when they're comparing it to their scriptures, it all fits. 
It's what they used too. And so it would have been natural for him to use these. It would have made the most sense. And even the way that he uses the quotations would have made sense. You see, we look back again at these Old Testament quotations. And we wonder, well, how did the author actually connect them to Jesus? So, for example, that quote, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's referring to Solomon. That quote in Psalm 45 addressed to, is addressed to, really, whoever the king is at that time on the throne. The quote from Psalm 102 is not God speaking to the Lord, speaking to the Messiah. It's just these, the psalmist is speaking to God. Well, what the truth is here, all of these passages were actually understood by many Jews of referring to the Messiah to come. They were looking for that Messiah, who was to be a son of David greater than Solomon. They were looking for a Messiah who was to be addressed, even with that title of God, as is done in Psalms 45 and 102. So the author then is referring to scriptures that his readers, well, they, they would have already accepted this as applying to the Messiah. And this is especially true of those quotations from Psalm 2, which all Jews interpreted as applying to the Messiah to come. And I want you to note something furthermore here, the tactic that the author takes. He's presenting Jesus' superiority over angels, And he introduces each quotation as spoken from God. To whom else did God say this? God is addressing the Messiah. God is uh, is referring to him as Son, as Lord, as even God. And that's particularly brought out in the Septuagint versions. Basically, what the author is saying to his readers, how can you argue with God? Now, argue with God about what? Well, it has to do with these Hellenistic Jews' interests in angels. There was, probably outside the mainstream of Jewish theologians, an abnormal interest in angels that was bordering on worship. Within the mainstream Jewish thought, they understood that the Old Testament scriptures were revealed by angels. So when you put these ideas together, it's easy to see, isn't it, how angels began to rival, for these Jewish believers here, they're beginning to rival Jesus in interest and in value. And so what our author is doing is he's writing to ship, so to speak. He is drawing these Hellenistic Jewish believers drawing them back to their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And first things first, he's going to put Jesus back on the throne where he belongs. He's going to put him back on that throne in the minds and the hearts of his readers. All right, let's apply now then these lessons to ourselves. And we can start with this by asking, how was it that these fathers and mothers in in the faith, how was it they were tempted to stray from their commitment 
to our Lord and Savior. Well, the call seems to be increasing pressure to abandon or at least to compromise their faith. Now, as we go through the book, we're going to find references to persecution. It's going to be clear that there is pressure to return to their old religious faith. If only because returning to the mainstream religious religion will bring relief from outside threats. It will bring relief for them within their own Jewish community, but even outside because in much of the time of the Roman Empire, anyhow, the Jewish religion was at least respected. But this new Christian faith was the new religion that was not received with tolerance. So going back to that would bring relief for them. Um, there's also uh, the, you know, the thing to think of when, when one is just suffering, when one is receiving threats and, and being persecuted, suffering itself will tend to cause us to look to something, something tangible, maybe even a desperate means, but something that, through which we can find comfort. And stories of angels, I mean, it feeds upon that kind of hunger. And that brings us to today. You know, Christians have always felt some form of pressure, some form to compromise and to conform with their culture. I think this may be the leading cause for why so many young people will stray from their faith in their teenage years. They'll profess faith and uh, as a child, and then as they move into junior high and high school, they will, and particularly into college, they will often stray away. Well, they can do this because, well, being a follower of Jesus is not something that one's peers look up to. They certainly are not considered cool. But even as adults, we have similar pressures. Adults uh, believers will be pressured to cut corners, for example, in their work life, to, to bend the rules, to compromise Christian ethics, to, to play the game necessary to succeed in their careers. And these pressures are only increasing in our present day. Now, still in the South, going to church, it can, can to a degree, be supported and, and be helpful to us. But going to church in much of this country, it, it now not only, no longer does it uh, enhance our careers, but it actually works against it. It can ruin our careers, especially if one is attending a gospel-preaching church. I had members of my church in Philadelphia. They had to be careful of making known their, their Christian faith, and particularly who the, what church they were members of. I know of churches who had had Difficult times trying to find a place to worship because there was so much hostility uh, against traditional church beliefs. So to profess to be a Christian is more and more difficult today unless, unless one is willing to profess being a Christian who conforms to the world's views of so-called tolerance. That is, um, you are not only being tolerated, but to be accepted, indeed, even being commended. To accept, as a Christian, that, 
Well, there are many ways to God that we all worship the same God. To accept all views of morality, that you have to just look to your own heart and and follow whatever best leads you. That kind of acceptance, that opens the doors to opportunity. It certainly avoids animosity and any kind of retribution. And so to conform, to compromise, is a growing temptation today. In order to escape trouble, in order to attain success, just as it was for our author's readers. And like them, there's a growing acceptance and and belief in spiritual matters that are outside Orthodox Christian teaching. There is a growing interest, even in our own day of angels and being visited by angels. We like to read books of people who have been visited by angels. These ideas are coming out of Eastern religion through New Age practices, and they're creeping into our faith. Let me give you one pervasive example. That expression that we commonly use as Christians, I feel. That's a New Age concept, not a biblically-based concept. This is what I feel Scripture is teaching. This is what I, I feel God is saying to me. You will not find that concept anywhere in Scripture, no matter how much you feel about it. And that kind of feeling is what will easily lead you away from what Scripture, from what the Word of God is actually teaching. It is what is leading many today to reject moral sexual values that we have long held because now we feel that this is the right thing to do. So as we go through Hebrews, let's pray. Let's pray for ourselves that the author will successfully turn our minds, keep our hearts to the supremacy of Jesus Christ as our Lord. Because as we're going to see, it will be in him alone, in upholding him alone, that we will be able to stay the course and in doing so, we're going to find that comfort. We're going to find that strength in this day that we live. We give you thanks, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God, who is the one over all of this creation, who is our Lord, who is our Savior. May we ever keep him before us upon that throne. May we bend ourselves to him and to his will and not try to bend him to ours. May we find in him our comfort in our strength. In his name we pray. Amen. Now let's continue uh, to worship our Lord through song.
And now may your love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Amen.